Paul's second epistle to Timothy, the last thing we have from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. I appreciate you who uh, struggled through after the hurricane last Sunday uh, for second hour with all the hiccups and glitches with um, the, the online delivery. That's the worst online service we've done in years. And um, I'm just rusty and um, out of practice. Uh, and, and so um, I know what happened. Some of you, I feel like I should be accountable with you about what happened. So the microphone input for the program that we used to do live streaming was the webcam, and that's not good. I have a dedicated microphone. I did a lot of work to get it set up, but it wasn't the input. And um, so I, the setting was off. So every time I switched from the camera, it switched off my mic. And um, so all that work I was doing to try to show you different things was, was ruining the message. So I've tried to do something exactly opposite. Today we're, uh, we're acoustic, just the Bible. Um, if you'll turn to, as I said, Second Timothy, we're going to talk about um, what it is to take on God's work in several themes. One is that it's interpersonal. If you want to make disciples, you're going to have to be personally engaged with people as Paul was with Timothy. And that means that you're going to have to share in their sufferings and you're going to have to encourage them through them. And at the same time, you're going to have to say, it hurts, but be tough anyway and do the work. And that's what Second Timothy is. We're interpersonal, we're compassionate, but we're also a little bit of a coach. Hey, there's work to do, and so let's get to it. Let's ask for the time before us in the Word, and then we'll get to Second Timothy. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge before us of the last epistle of the Apostle Paul. The challenge because of the way it is stated that there is apostasy, there is coming an end times apostasy of rejection of you. Paul anticipated and could warn Timothy about. And despite that hardship that he foresaw prophetically on the horizon, Timothy was still to be a good steward of the ministry you had committed to him. Father, there's so much we can apply to us in this epistle. Pray that we'll be careful to do that. And as you enlighten our hearts to your word, we'll be careful to give you all glory and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus that we just sang about. The promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son. I'll back that up. Timothy, the beloved child. Let me, as we do a little bit of read-through exposition this morning, let me just point out the interpersonal nature of the gospel mission. Some of you are really wired for connection, and others are really wired for not connection. And I understand that. It's personality. It's how we're what you are. There was a, a young lady at camp, a counselor, 20-something, early 20s, 
She had a t-shirt on that had a picture of a cactus. Y'all stop me if you've already heard this one. And it said on the bottom, not a hugger. (laughs) And I thought that's a young girl in Christian camp culture with boys interested in getting a hug, you know. Um, And I said, hey, that's a great shirt. Is that your family? Did you do that? Did your parents send you to camp with that? Or did you? No, I'm just, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But yet she was the senior counselor for a bunch of little girls being their mama at 22 years old or whatever, being their mama at camp and um, trying to constantly direct them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian ministry, according to first Timothy chapter, sorry, second Timothy chapter uh, two, chapter one, verse one uh, and verse two is that it's interpersonal and it's familial. When Paul preaches the gospel and you become a believer in Jesus Christ, that preaching Paul thinks you're his. Not, not that you're not Jesus in Jesus flock, but that Jesus has used him to bring you in. So he's your, there's a relationship. And so he calls Timothy, does the same thing for Titus. These are his true children in the word. It's a special relationship. Maybe you have brought someone to Christ. Maybe you've been in that kind of interaction where you've been able to be the person on hand when the person finally understood and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her personal savior. It's a very personal thing that God has done and it's not about us. So I have to keep two things in mind. The gospel ministry is interpersonal. You don't have to be a super relator kind of person to deal with people as God's image bearers, to care about them on God's account, to be what God wants you to be in their lives. You don't need a personality adjustment to do that. You need the word of God in your soul. But on the other hand, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about I'm going to fix the person or I'm going to bring them along or I saved you. That's not, it's never I as the bold underline. It's about me. It's about Praise be to God. My only boast is in Christ because he allowed me to be part of something that for you is forever. Why don't we have interpersonal connection and disciple making? Why are we lacking in this? I have 18 reasons, but I'll just share two. I don't really have 18. I mean, I could come up with 18. One reason we're disconnected is because we lack connection with God because we break fellowship with him. And that relationship between me and that other Christian is about fellowship with God. So when I'm broken in my fellowship with God, well, that's not happening either. And so there's no power. There's no basis for the relationship. And we feel like, like a hypocrite. That's one reason. And the second is, is obviously related. I've broken fellowship with God. And so this is not about God anymore. When I'm sinful, when I'm carnal, it's about me. But the second thing is we feel that to make this about God, I have to be about God. If I want to be in my own head about personal sin, that's not the nature of disciple making relationships. So it really does come down to your walk with God, a compromised walk with God through personal sin 
or a neglect of God's word means that I feel hypocritical if I'm trying to make disciples with someone. So it really is a product, this problem of failed interpersonal relationships and disciple making. Unlike with Paul, who's on the mission all the time and in the word constantly, as our example, it's a product of our negligence, our spiritual lackluster, our laziness. Now, I could just jump into James real quick and tell you to cleanse your hands, you adulteresses, and weep and mourn and turn your, turn your uh, revelry into to crying and all that, and I'm not going to do that. This isn't a message today about how you're getting it wrong just because Paul tells Timothy that he's his beloved child. But what we should do with this is where we need to change our thinking or repent about our responsibilities to one another in making disciples. We should do it. We should repent. We should say, okay, God wants me to be part of this work in which Paul, when he's getting it right, can call Timothy his family member. And we need to be that. Maybe your struggle is, I don't know how to be that. I don't have a good family relationship. I've never been close to people. I don't know. I don't make good friends. I'm not that kind of person. That's your prayer life. Pastor, you're telling me I should be like Paul this way, but I'm not. Tell God. Get with the Lord about it. And watch him move mountains. I could never watch out for what you could never do. You and I, perhaps you've watched, I certainly have. I've seen wonders wrought in people's character through just the word of God that I could never have imagined. Oh, he'll never be able to do X, Y, Z. Oh, I could never. Yeah, you can. And you'll be amazed what you can do. If God wanted me to be interpersonal and related to people, then I, you know, he'd make me that way. Well, pay attention to his word and open your heart when you open the word and see if he doesn't. To Timothy, my beloved child, and then you have what God wants for every one of his beloved children, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've read the story of Ruth, if you read the book of Ruth, you know that one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament, Boaz, never says anything but the right thing as he's presented in the story, Ruth's husband, Boaz. Boaz only says the right thing. Does anybody remember what the first thing Boaz says in the book of Ruth? When you put quotes and Boaz speaks, you know what the first thing he says? A blessing from God to his subordinates, to his workers. The first thing you know about him is a blessing from God. May God bless you. May the Lord, may Yahweh be with you. This is everything, um, this, is, this is constantly in the words of the Apostle Paul, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the way to be like Paul here at the end of the Christian life of Paul and to be able to interrelate with other believers, broken and sinful as we are and as they are, and the way to offer God's blessings and a, a, a sacrifice from Hebrews 13 of praise and lips that confess our Savior the way to do that is to stay in fellowship with God. The way to do that, in other words, is to abide in Christ. The way to do that is to stay connected to the vine. And then it is the fruit of the spirit. Then it is the work of the Lord Jesus in you. And if you're struggling in these things, it's just indicative of a stalling spiritual life. Now you can come here every time the doors are open. You can fill your notebook with notes. 
You can uh, memorize the passage I'm going to study because you knew 2 Timothy was coming because we're at the last book of Paul and get nothing out of it. You can. It's possible. I've seen it. It's also possible to come here and open your heart to God and his word and come to know him and serve him as he really is and to grow to spiritual maturity in a, in a, and serve him in his work in a mature way within your spiritual gift. And the difference is knowing about God and knowing God. The difference is hearing things and the difference is coming to know the one that you've come to serve. And it's the difference between hypocrisy and worship. Now, Paul says in verses three through seven, what his desires are for Timothy and his prayers. And in this section, we get the theme of why he writes, the occasion for writing. Something has gone wrong in Timothy's ministry. We had him set up for success on the front end in 1 Timothy. And then and he's going to Ephesus and there's going to be hard work. And then we, we took a break from thinking on Timothy because Titus came next and he sent Titus to Crete, set him up for ministry, a very similar letter to 1 Timothy. And now 2 Timothy is the mop-up, it's the cleanup, it's the triage, it's the, it's the, the emergency room after Timothy has been broken and battered on the mission field. I was talking to you about these people up in Maine, Camp Good News. For kids that are 14 to 18, their version of youth camp is a 10-day training ground called Christian Youth in Action. It is camp. You sleep away, you have a counselor. But it's a training event in which they are teaching teenagers to share Jesus Christ, to run good news clubs, to interact with people and start conversations for the gospel. In some cases, they'll take them downtown uh, in, in nearby Maine, downtown Lewiston, Hoppin, crazy place, you know. They'll take them to, 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 to just try to share Christ with strangers. And they'll do it in a controlled way where there's an adult with them. And they may get their feelings hurt. They may say, I'm going to try this conversation starter we talked about. And the person laughs at them or curses them or something. And there's that, there's that adult right there to say, okay, let's talk about this. When you get hurt because someone is offensive to you, think about when you were a kid and someone insults you in school. If you had your parents and they were training you and they were concerned for your development, that was always a training opportunity for you to take that pain and learn and deal and take it back to God. That's what that is. Moms and dads who have kids and you're thinking about what am I doing with my kids? It's always a training opportunity. Deuteronomy 6 again, whether we're laying down or rising up, whether we're sitting in our house or going about the way, we're in the word. It's about the Lord Jesus. But moms and dads, when, when, when you have a kid that comes to you and they've been hurt by some other human being, that's very similar to a training event for sharing the gospel with people especially in a culture that's growing more and more hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you say to them? You say, son, you have to consider the source. Do you call your daughter's daughter? I wouldn't know. Daughter? Um, you have to say, I know that this hurts, but greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. You have to take it back to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, this is about him. And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him who sent you. And the world hates him. So they're going to hate you as well. And we take it through a biblical perspective on what you're responsible for. That's, that's what you're doing when you comfort a child in the Lord who's been hurt by 
the attacks of the world. And that's what they do at this camp. If there's, if there's a bad experience, counselor, uncle so-and-so, they call everybody's an uncle or an aunt. They, they, they pray with you and they work through. And you can just see how valuable this would be as a kind of a hand-over-hand training ground to set kids up for a lifetime of ministry in the gospel. I love it. I am so excited. We're going to take my oldest son. He's ready. He's old enough to go next year. I'm going to go work it. And as many as are of age that want to come, we want to take a, we'll fill up two of these vans and go up there and do this Christian Youth in Action. I have some interest for some of you. Um, it's an amazing opportunity, and it's, it's intensive. It's 10 days. Um, I think one of us already, I think Ashley went a couple years ago. And um, anyway, I have, no, I have nothing but good things to say about it. But my point is that training in the ministry of the gospel is going to be at times the more mature believer coming along somebody that's hurt, that's been damaged by an interaction with the world, and they're hurting. And it's going to be an encouragement. It's going to be two things. It's going to be a spirit of compassion toward the person, as Paul will show you to toward Timothy, remembering Timothy's tears. And it's also going to be a remembrance, hey, I know you have these feelings, but let's think about what we're here for. It's both. Your feelings matter, but they're not, they're not everything, and they're not even the main thing. And you are hurt, but let's think about what you are supposed to be doing, because that's the way out of the maze is to start thinking about what we're doing. So Paul will start his prayer. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. That's an interesting paraphrase of the new American standard. As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you all the time. I'm longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Now, Verse four, I want you to think about the way Paul personally interacts. Now, have you ever dealt with a leader in any circumstance where they're telling you what they should be telling you, but they don't really mean it? Where they're just kind of going through the motions, they're there, there, and you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, um, it's going to be fine. And um, uh, can I get back to you? Um, it's hard to, to know when you're talking to someone on the phone, whether they're actually inv- invested, but th- when they're in person, you can definitely tell if they're distracted or bored or thinking of something else. But Paul isn't this way with Timothy. Not if we take him at face value. He says, I long to see you. I have no idea what Timothy's personality was like. I have no idea. You know, sometimes you get together with friends and just like to be with them. They're fun to be around. I have no idea about that with Timothy. I just think that Paul sees somebody that's positive for the word, who's grown and put on Christ sufficiently that he can go share Jesus with these people. And he loves that. It's his life. And for Timothy, it's Timothy's life. And so they have that in common. And the more intensive they are about the word, the more their rapport will grow. And so Paul says, I'm longing to see you, constantly remembering you in my prayers in verse three, longing to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Paul is telling Timothy that in getting together, I talked about this at the end of Titus, the biblical doctrine of Christian co-location. I just want to be with you. That will fill me with joy. What is he talking about? The, the world around you, anthropological studies, sociology, they have no answer for what we're talking about. Sigmund Freud would have some sort of sexual reference here. But what's he talking about? He's talking about the joy of co-laboring in the gospel. Paul is a soldier for Christ and Timothy is right there in the ranks with him. And there's no camaraderie 
There's no camaraderie like that kind of service under opposition, knowing you're in the right mission for the right cause, working together, sacrificing and serving together. You hear service people, and we're all thinking about the military these days. We better be. Constantly reminding God of, of them in prayer. The military people will tell you that there's no greater experience they've had of camaraderie than when they've gone through some hardship. They've been through a difficult training process or a combat scenario, combat brothers. The guys that uh, Stephen Ambrose interviewed from Easy Company, from the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment and the 101st Airborne to write Band of Brothers. These men were brothers because they'd been through so much together in combat. There are many books written about these, this one group of, of, of people, but this is the nature of the relationship. And so I think we should think about this. Do you have this in your life? First of all, are you a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ in the work? Are you in harness to do the work he's got you doing? Because I'll tell you, it's not, it's not being offensive to people. It's not getting in people's face. It is representing the world, re- representing Jesus Christ to a world that is rejecting him with love that God is offering. It is, that's the mission. It is the love that God is offering expressed through your actions and your words to a world that is rejecting him. It's preaching, there's coming a flood, get on the boat while there's still some time. One of you asked me a very important question looking at the news of our time. I'm talking about the mission, I'm talking about the attitude and the compassion and the interrelatedness that we see in Paul and Timothy and where, where do you have this in your life? I'm asking that very self-judgmental question. It, it gets me too. Now, very important question. David, as you look at what's happening in our foreign policy, as you look what's happening in our country, Victor Davis Hanson said, if you do the math, the amount of military equipment that we just gave a terrorist organization amounts to the full complement of American military financial aid to Israel for 35 years. And the people we gave that material to would love nothing more than to destroy Israel with it. It's crazy what's happened. And so my friend says, why are you not talking about this all the time? Like, how do you not preach on this constantly? I'll tell you. Some of you think I do, and I I don't think I do. Because time is short. This world is not my home. And as Fortress U.S. falls from the decline within, the same thing as the Roman Empire, as we internally, in our internal decay, collapse as a civilization, and you're starting to see it, we're surrendering to terrorists. We're giving the names of our people to the terrorists so they'll help us out and find them. It's, as, and and I, I know that probably mainstream media will say this is the right thing to do because we're just morally compromised from within. And so you, you fall from, from without because there's no internal structure. The skeleton's, you know, liquefied when, when, when this happens. It's happened throughout church history. Nations have risen and fallen. Daniel 4, the Lord is in control of the kingdoms and the rise and the fall of kingdoms. We can read what Jeremiah thought in the collapse of his country or Isaiah. 
These are good examples and illustrations for us, but it doesn't matter whether we have even the very basic freedoms that our Constitution supposedly guarantees to us, which are now denounced as white racist thoughts. It doesn't matter if we have these freedoms in comparison to the vital work God has for us to do with the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. If you think that what you see in your international set with the dissolving of the country at the border and the, the, the international debasement of your people in, in, in the, the foreign affairs that you're seeing, if you think this is, well, we're, we're about to go out as a nation. If you think that, and China's gonna run this place and all that, if you think that way, it just tells you to be more careful with the time and the freedom that you have for the mission, for the interpersonal connections that amount to encouragement. Because see, Paul can talk to a crowd of people and he can try to go one by one and try to, you know, be interpersonal with all these people. Or he can see what God gives him and work on Timothy and Titus. And Timothy and Titus are going to go speak to a crowd of people. So Paul is speaking, as it were, to many people that he never sees because of the others that he's trained that go forward. And that's what we're here for. We are part of this work. And I, I think some of you have to get it out of your head that we're in a compartment that I've got my work life or my school life and my family life and we go to church on Sunday. We have to stop thinking this way. It's a waste of your life. That's not the Christian way of life. You might as well not do the Sunday thing. Don't. Because you're wasting that. Go, if you're going to do, do the, Sol, the Solomon thing and go play, just go play. We don't come here for a weekly nod to God is what I'm saying. We come here for a recharge to be about the work that God has for us 24-7. And it's hard. And it's, I mean, excuse me, it's impossible what the work of, without the work of the Spirit in us. The reason I keep my finger in the Bible, which makes me, as I teach Paul, constantly harangue you about the mission that every one of you, every single one of you is responsible to be a part of. I don't care what else you're doing for your living. That's not your mission. Raising kids is not your mission, but discipling them is your mission. Them growing to maturity and surviving the throes of, of, of childhood, that, that's part of how you get there, but your job is to make a disciple of that child and those around you and their friends and anyone else that God brings into your periphery. What I'm saying is that I think that the, the, the circumstance we find ourselves in this country is a foregone conclusion. Watching the ship sink, I mean, the hull is already, is already compromised. The water's been rushing in for a long time. We're just starting to see the bow tip up. That's what I think, morally. Because I believe, in principle, I think that internally, you have to th have things sound so that externally, you have good policies. But if, if internally we're flying rainbow flags over Afghanistan, I expect that to end up blowing up in our faces because we've lost our minds. So what am I telling you? Time is short, beloved. Tick, tock. And Paul feels the shortness of time as he writes this letter. He says, I am about to be poured out as a drink offering when it gets to chapter four. I long to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul has a lot to rejoice about. He's Rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4. He is 
can always recall all the doctrines that he's taught us through his letters. But he also has the interpersonal joy of co-locating with people of like mind who get it. And I believe that's what you and I should have every time we assemble. I'm with people that get it, that this life is about God and his work through us and bringing many sons to glory. He says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that is in, with you, that is in you as well. That's your focus on the family verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, that this is a multi-generational impact. We do want to bring out when the word of God honors women because it's considered, you know, by many to be a, um, you know, a, a knuckle-dragging, paternalistic, whatever document of, uh, of oppressing women and keeping them under the thumb. And, you know, the, the Democrats will tell us that the Republicans are America's Taliban because they believe the Bible or whatever. I didn't say it. I just, I just used it as an illustration. But if we watch the Bible, God is constantly honoring women. He's constantly saying, look what, look what I did in creating womanhood and look what they did, this one did, in honoring me. So forevermore, you and I are going to be looking forward to meeting Lois and Eunice, grandmother and mother of Timothy. The grandmother, this was interesting to me. I didn't know the word for grandmother in Greek. It's not a common word. <laughs> you would think um, in the Bible, but it's um, M-A-M-M-E. I was blown away. We are speaking Greek to our mommies. M-A-M-M-E. And the A says ah. And the long E at the end, the Ada says A or E. Today in, in Greek, they say E for Ada. Mami, mame. That's how you would say Grandmother in Greek. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, and it's the accent is on the first syllable, mame. <laughs> so if you get some interesting conversations with your kids calling you mame from the Greek, um, tell them, no, that's grandmother. Mother is mater, which would, where we get the word mother. Anyway, what are we doing with families? Well, in Paul's case, See, he went to the Roman province of Galatia and he preached the gospel in Lystra and Derby, where Timothy's from. And the grandmother, middle-aged woman, heard Paul preach. And I think of Timothy as a baby in his mother's arms when Paul first comes through, or a little boy. And I think grandma heard, because he mentions her first, her grandmother. I think she heard Paul. And like the woman uh, in, in John 4, and, uh, and the Samaritan woman, I think she went and got her daughter and said, oh, you got to hear this. I think it's something like that. And, um, and, and somehow they both, because see, it, it, it's one generation. It's within a one 20-year period, within a 20-year period that, that this has happened, that this boy has grown up with this witness from his two matriarchs, his mother and his grandmother. So they were adults right? When they first heard Paul and they both came to the, the party and they raised the boy in it and they saturated him with what Paul had given them. That's a model for us. I love it. I love that the grandmother's involved.
So because I'm sure that their faith is in you as well, and, and we've already had First Timothy, he's sufficiently a faithful believer to go after these knuckleheads in Ephesus in, chapter, in First Timothy. He says, for this reason, I want to bring it to your attention. I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In Paul's day, the apostles were walking the earth and they could direct someone to, into a spiritual service by spiritual gift and it's by laying of hands. This is the apostolic era of the church. The apostles have died. We have their word. We don't believe this is how it's working today. But in the early part of Paul's ministry, this is how it worked. And so Paul deputized Timothy. We symbolize that with laying on of hands in an ordination. But we believe that the spiritual gift is directly from the spirit when you become a believer the minute you first believe in Christ. But he says, you've got this spiritual gift. And I know you do because I was there when you received it. And so you need to put it back into practice. Verses like this in verse six make us want to know what our spiritual gift is. So we'll know that we're putting it into practice. This is one of the great conundrums of uh, Christian life is that God doesn't tell you what your spiritual gift is. Wouldn't it be nice if you were born again and issued, um, you know, an indestructible Bible, right? You can't tear the pages, you know, um, only notes that are correct, make it like stay in there. Everything else kind of races off, but you're given an indestructible Bible and there on the inside cover, it said, born again, this day is you, your name. Um, and, uh, bound for heaven irrevocably by the love of God, which will not let me go. And your spiritual gift is helps get to work. Would it be nice if it did that, but it doesn't do that. How do you know what your gift is? How do you know to do what Timothy's told to do is to kindle his gift afresh? How will we do this? And the answer is take a Scantron test. It's somebody, some human made up that doesn't know any more about it than you do. Let's ask humans. Let's ask people, well, what's my spiritual gift? I don't know. Help me bring the groceries in. Helps. Your helps today. <laughs> or I don't, I don't know what your spiritual gift is. That's God's decision. That's God's direction. Let's watch you grow. It's the ugly duckling, people. It really is. It's the ugly duckling. Do you all know the story? I think it's Hans Christian Anderson. Okay. The, the duck hatches and he's ugly and he doesn't look like the other ducks because spoiler alert, his genetics don't work to be a duck. He's not a duck. He's genetically a swan. So he, he's ugly compared to the pretty little fuzzy yellow ducks. He's big and ugly and black, but he's fuzzy and he quacks and he's got flippers. So, okay. But from the very beginning, he's genetically this thing that he's going to grow into being. And as he eats his food and as he grows up and as time goes on and he swims his laps, he spreads his wings. All of a sudden, he's a great big trumpeting swan. Why? Because he was born to be a swan and he grew up into a swan. That's, how, that's the story. That's how your spiritual gift is. You are what God made you when you first trusted in Christ. I believe that's how it works. I think that's the indication in Ephesians chapter four. We all received a spiritual gift in verse seven and it's contingent. It's at the point of our salvation when we trusted in Christ and you're born with a spiritual code, spiritual genetic code to grow in to what you're gifted to be. So how will I know what it is? Well, 
I think you'll grow and you'll eat your food and you'll swim your laps, you'll fly your patterns, you'll do the work that God has for you to do, you'll eat the food, the superfood that grazes you spiritually, and you'll find yourself with certain, listen to it, inclinations and aptitudes that bear on the work of making disciples. You might find that you're most content and most useful to others when you're fixing something. And I'm not saying that that's, a, that's not a stated spiritual gift in the Bible, but we have plenty of evidence in scripture, starting with Bezalel and Exodus, of the Holy Spirit equipping a man to be an artisan to do the work that God has for him to do. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that, that your spiritual gift is fixing things, but maybe as you grow spiritually, you find that you can serve and help in this way. Maybe you find yourself wanting to be around people. I grew up that way, feeling guilty about it because I thought that meant that I was too dependent on people or something and that you can become. It's dangerous. What I learned was, no, I want to be around people because I have work to do and it's the people. So what happens? So you grow up spiritually and then you start functioning in your gift. You have certain inclinations. You have certain aptitudes that bear on the work that God has commended to the church. Where'd I get it? As we close, I'll just read from Ephesians chapter four. In verse seven, he said to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. A gift is what he's talking about in his victory lap from, from uh, the resurrection. And in verse 11, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, all the communicators. I believe apostles and prophets have run their course. That's for the beginning of the church age when we're generating the Bible. We now have the entirety of the canon of scripture. So now we have the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. Now these are communicators and I'm, I'm saying there's something you can learn about all the gifts here because what these communicators do, listen in verse 12, they were given for the equipping of the saints, that's you and me, believers in Christ, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That is the great commission. The building up of the body of Christ is recruiting and raising believers. It is evangelism and disciple making through the word of God. And so these communicators are equipping the saints to do the work. That's what I'm trying to do now is give you a sense of the high privilege of doing it, the conviction that it's also your responsibility and that it's something God has for you and your spiritual giftedness. Now, again, everyone has a spiritual gift, just like Timothy. And it is not an option. It's not set up for you as optional. I may use my gift. God's intention is that in, in longing for the pure milk of the word and studying God's word and coming to know him in a mature way through his word, you will grow spiritually into the normal expression of that gift. You'll have certain inclinations, certain aptitudes that will empower you to love others in the building up of the body of Christ. I think that the spiritual gift list in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, the, the spiritual gift discussion, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 
has in the very center of it the question of love, in part because your spiritual gifts are special enablements for you to love the body of Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, for this reason of my love for you and your faith and, and this multi-generational impact, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. And then this is the, the challenging part where he has compassion for Timothy's tears, but he doesn't end on compassion. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or of cowardice or of, or of defeat but of power and love and discipline. We don't relate interpersonally because we're scared to. Afraid we'll be rejected or afraid, I don't know, some of you are just afraid of being bored. We don't relate as we should for a lot of reasons, but they generally amount to I'm not on mission and I'm not in fellowship with God. So get back in fellowship. The way you do that is you confess your sins to God seeking the forgiveness that God promises through that forgiveness, through that, through that confession. And you get in his word and look for that growth. And the growth comes from seeking to know him. Well, um, the challenge of Second uh, Timothy is um, how do you love somebody back into the work when they've been hurt and taken offline? Well, you don't do it by saying you're going to, you're going to just have to be a victim. You say, we have something. We have certain responsibilities and we need to step up to them. That's what I learned from the Apostle Paul. And it helps me answer some tough questions in leadership that I have from time to time. The answer is very rarely there, there. I know it hurts the end. It may start there, but the answer generally is. And so now let's switch over to thinking about what we're responsible for. Well, I'm responsible to uh, let you go And let's uh, pause here. We'll pick it up next Sunday in verse 8 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice out online or picking up this recording later. If you're here in person and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're definitely talking to you and we don't know who you are. But God does and he wants you to hear these words. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh to save you from your sins. You may not even understand that you have sins. But the truth is that a perfect, holy, and righteous God is going to have to judge sin in us, and we are all guilty of it. The Christian confession is not that we Christians are the good people and unbelievers are the bad people. It is that we are the sinners who have been saved by grace, and those who don't trust in Jesus Christ don't have that salvation. So we desperately want you to consider it. The simple transaction of the cross meant everything to God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God toward you, and it means everything. God even gave his son. He who gave over his only begotten son for us, how will he not freely with him give us all things? paraphrases Romans 8. And what you need to do with the offer of life is receive, first of all, this love that God is expressing to you by trusting him. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. What you need to do with Jesus and his offer of life through his death on the cross is you need to trust him because your savior, the one who died for your sins, went to the cross and all your sins, past, present, and future were poured out on him and judged by God the father. 
and then Jesus was buried, and on the third day he rose again, proving the satisfaction for our sins, proving the offer of eternal life, and he does that right now. Take the life that he offers simply by opening the hand of faith and receiving it, I believe, in Jesus Christ as my Savior. That may be, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, that will be the moment of the new birth for you. And that is the beginning of a life of responsibility and opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For as babies must grow, so must we when we're born again. Father, we trust you and thank you for this life. Thank you for the privilege of thinking through these things together and being challenged about the interpersonal nature of the mission of the gospel as we consider this closing epistle of Paul. We ask that you'd uh, equip us to take these things seriously and not walk away as people who haven't seen the word don't know what we are, but take them to heart and, and put them to practice for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.